Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast and for, well, the first time in what seems like an age, we've actually got a race to talk about. Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison and uh, guys, this was fantastic. We finally got back to work. We finally got back to seeing some racing and uh, we've pretty much been left with one of the most action-packed Grand Prix weekends I can remember. And uh, Dave, whenever you look back at what we saw last weekend, there's just plenty of storylines all the way. It was just you can look at Marquez you can look at Quadraro you can look at Ducati you can look at Binder you can look at pretty much any angle you want and there's something incredibly interesting to talk about yeah exactly I mean it was uh, it, there's the old joke about the buses you know you wait for an hour for uh, or you wait for, for, for years for a uh, bus to come along and all of a sudden two come along together this was you know you wait 245 days for a uh, for a motorbike race to happen and uh, about 12 happen all within the space of uh, 45 minutes it was absolutely insane there were so many things going on with from the test to practice to the race um every uh, team almost every uh, factory everything and neil obviously you were at hareth as well you were at the circuit and a very different experience to anything you've ever really had at a racetrack yeah, for sure. It was uh, a strange weekend uh, in many respects. Um, from a personal point of view, it was just uh, odd going to a track where there was no people around, where the paddock was empty, grandstands were empty, there was no atmosphere, there was no traffic coming in on Sunday morning. Uh, there was just no no buzz about the place, especially at Jerez, you know, one of the most atmospheric rounds of the year. Um, and you had that feeling up until 11 a.m. On, on Sunday, and thankfully we had two great races. And, uh, well, as David said, enough drama in the MotoGP race to just get everyone buzzing, even if uh, we were confined to the media center. Yeah, and uh, Dave, we'll jump straight into the race because we've got so much to talk about that for, for a rare occasion, there's no point to chit-chat beforehand. Dave, the biggest story, Mark Marquez and his, and his fractured arm. Just talk us through what you thought of uh, the incident, what you think of Mark's prognosis as well on the basis of what we've heard from Dr. Mir in Barcelona after the surgery. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's tempting to uh, call sort of the exit of turn three now do a, a Honda corner because uh, it keeps on hurting Honda riders doing it end of his career there. And now Mark Marcus had a really big crash there. I mean, uh, Mark Marcus, it all started off really um, uh, a, a corner later, at, at, really at, at turn four on the, in, in the early laps when Mark had an absolutely massive slide and a huge save. Um, uh, but ran off track, lost a lot of time, uh, found himself uh, a, l a long way back, uh, back of the pack, and having to fight his way through uh, through the field again. Um, that meant he was he was properly motoring. He was doing an Argentina. He was. Uh, uh, I went through and, and calculated his average pace, and he was uh, two tenths a lap on average, faster than uh, the winner, Fabio Quasararo, and he was nearly half a second a lap faster than Maverick Vinales, who finished second. Uh, it was just absolutely, absolutely bonkers. Um, and he went a little bit too far, uh, lost the rear, the rear bit, it spat him off uh, on the exit of turn three, big high side, got hit by the bike, the front wheel slammed into his right arm. Uh, that broke his uh, humerus, which is the big bone in your in your upper arm. Um, after the crash, they were worried about nerve damage because there's a bunch of nerves which run down the bone uh, towards the hand, which operate the hand. And obviously, if those get seriously damaged, then it 
could have ended his career, but it would have been very, very serious indeed. Um, he was operated on earlier today. They put a plate in. Uh, they did have to, have to actually open him up, which sort of is a, a a sign that things were things were not fantastic. But they've opened him up, put a titanium plate on. He's back on. Uh, there's no nerve damage, and they are looking at uh, a return at uh, Bruno, hopefully, which seems both optimistic and really, really, you know, pretty tough, considering that Bruneau will be the first race in the, the first of three races. If he if he's not fit for Bruneau, then it'll be the first race in Austria. Yeah, Neil, we were talking about this earlier on before we started recording. Three races in 17 days, coming back from that sort of injury around a physical track like Bruneau, a circuit like Austria with big heavy braking zones. It's not exactly the ideal one if that is when Mark can come back. Yeah, you think about the upper body strength that's needed for the high-speed chicanes that we have in Bernal. There's numerous uh, quick changes of direction there. Then you also think about the, the heavy braking zones in Austria where you're braking all the way down to first gear from sixth. Um, there's going to be no easy track to come back to with a healing right humerus that has been fractured. Um, but these really do look like um, two difficult rounds. And it was interesting today, um, Alberto Puj, team manager of Repsol Honda, came out to say that they're not going to rush him back. They're not putting a time frame on it. They're not talking about days or weeks or months of when he's going to come back because, as Puj said, um, they have Mark Marquez signed up for four years after 2020 and they don't want to do anything that will put his career at risk, essentially. Um, coming back half fit or, or with half strength in that arm it's just not going to work it's, there's no point in risking that much um, when the championship let's face it seems to be at this point already lost yeah and Dave just when Neil mentions there about the championship obviously for Mark if he's able to come back at Brno, he only misses two rounds in the MotoGP championship but then you have to come back and immediately be at the front be able to win races get podiums and, and score big points when you look at it as it stands right now is there too much to lose versus what he can gain by coming back early? Or is it still just a case of we don't really know until all the swelling goes down after the surgery and suddenly he's able to properly test himself? Well, first of all, you have to remember that Mark Marquez is um, uh, a bit bonkers and wants to race no matter what the cost. So he's gonna, of course he's going to come. Uh, he's going to come back. They will literally have to. I mean, when he was having his uh, shoulder surgery, they had to take his uh, wheels off of his training bike to stop him from actually riding them, hide them away, and only give them back when he was uh, when he was fit enough, or when they thought he was fit enough to ride again. So he's he's obviously going to uh, try and come back early. Um, I think, especially with a with a, with a plated humerus, with a plated uh, bone, it's mostly going to be about pain i'm not sure that the risk is going to be any more than it might normally be um he might have a bad result uh but then again you know picking up there is going to be so much pressure on this championship 13 races in 18 weeks um that i think you're going to see because we saw a lot of mistakes we saw uh, mark marcus wasn't the only riders crash we saw cal crutchlow ca uh, crash in in morning warm-up and a uh, fracture scaphoid we saw alex rince have a ha have a big crash uh, uh during qualifying and break his arm uh we saw danilo petrucci crash during testing so if you look at um if you look at the intensity of this period, the intensity of this of this um, this season, 
then people are going to really, uh, uh, yeah, people are going to take a lot more risks. So it's, it'll be worth coming back early. Also, you know, well, like Nikki Hayden said, you know, that's why we line up on Sunday. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, we won't know how the championship's going to end up until we finish the far, the last race, either at Valencia or wherever it happens to be. So, yeah. Neil, just uh, looking at, uh, as David mentioned earlier on, just about Marquez's pace through the race. Like There was times during that race where he was overtaking people and still was a second and a lap faster than anyone else out on track. Obviously, to do that with 55, 60 degree track temperature, you're just putting an unbelievable strain on the Michelin tires. And we did see that Mark was struggling a little bit and squirming in uh, a lot of corners in the run-up to his crash. But do you think, did he just push too hard trying to do what Mark always does, which is just try and prove just how good he is? Because after the moment he has... To, for anyone to even see him again in the race was going to be a surprise to them and then he just comes blasting past and pulls it open a gap on pretty much everyone as well yeah I wrote a bit about this for on track off road earlier today um, I think first of all it was one of the greatest performances I think we can say if the, the more recent modern era I mean you're, you're talking about Estoril 2010 or Motegi 2012 you're talking about Argentina I think Dave mentioned earlier in 2018 I mean it was that level of dominance and, and just uh, being a cut above everyone else um, what seriously impressed me I think it was uh, lap 10 passing Petrucci into turn 4 I mean how often do you see riders make moves in turn 4 and that is just I think 5 laps after he had had that massive save there just to go in there full of confidence and the succession of passes he made, Davizioso and Morbidelli took him one lap as if they were standing still. Uh, it was it was phenomenal. And, and you know, we, we normally, we're so used to seeing quite processional races in Jerez because of the high temperatures, the lack of grip. Obviously, the Moto2 race before obviously makes things complicated. It's, it's quite rare that you see guys cutting through the field like this. In fact, uh, Brad Binder, I think, is maybe the exception in Moto3, but that's Moto3. You know, we're talking about MotoGP here and it's a, it's a different ballgame. Um Yes, so it was it was quite something. And Neil, you mentioned the movie made on Petrucci, but we also saw him make moves into turn eight, lots of places where you just don't see moves at all. And there was also just that arrogance you get from Mark on the bike where he just didn't give a damn about anyone that was around him. It, it, it was that, you see the same mentality come out with a lot of riders that are great champions and then they have to come through the field and it's almost as if, well, I shouldn't be battling with you so I'm just going to just dive down the inside. It's up to you to avoid a crash and that was definitely the case with some of the moves that Mark was making because they were just, be well, they were reckless at times other than the fact that obviously with Mark, he's able to collect things and, and make things happen. But a lot of times it really was a case of, you don't want to have this accident, so just get out of my way. Mm. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think a lot of his moves were quite controlled, actually. Um, there was like the one on Petrucci, there was a great one on um, Benyaya in the tournament, as you said. Um, but as we know, Honda this year is a difficult motorcycle. Basically, Mark has gone back to, or had gone back to a 2019 chassis, um, 2020 engine, last year's aerodynamics package. Um, that bike needed to be ridden on a, like, you know, had to be pushed to the absolute limits to, to be ridden quickly. Um, which, by the way, I think is another reason why it's going to be so difficult for him to come back if he's not fighting fit because he can't just moodle around and, and collect points. That bike needs to be strangled to get the best out of it. Um, but to go back with 
to your original question, Steve, yeah, there was that arrogance. Yeah, he probably should have settled for third or taken a bit more time when he was so close to Vinales. I think he was just a tenth behind when he crashed. Um, however, it's Mark Marquez and what he'd been doing before was so brilliant and so incredible. Who's to say, like, who are we to say, oh, yeah, you should probably take it easy now, mate, after riding 17 laps of the most incredible race of your career one of the most incredible races of your career um paul espargaro you know summarized it quite nicely on sunday night he was like this is what makes mark mark you know and if you if you expect him to do anything else you don't really know a great deal about racing so um yeah i would be inclined to agree with paul yeah i think like it's the reason why people like mark or when you look at some other racers they're, they're just box office and there's a reason that you're just drawn to them every time they're on screen and Dave just going back to you about one thing about Mark we saw him come through the field and as Neil said like we all knew exactly what he was going to do there was no way that Mark was going to just try and ride around I think we were, we were chatting in our group chat and we, we said immediately well he, he can get top five and then after a couple of laps it's like ah, he's going to be on the podium and then it's like, oh, well, actually, he's going to get second. And there wasn't any surprise with what Mark was doing. And then there also wasn't a surprise when he had the crash because he was pushing so hard at that stage. And you'd have to say the reason for that is he probably still thought in the back of his head, it might be five seconds to Fabio, but I can go faster. I can I can pull that gap and I can, I can put him under pressure. And it, it seemed to me very similar to, if you remember different times last year, whether it was Thailand or Sepang or... You know, moments when Fabio was in a position to win races and Mark, you know, could have thought about the championship or he could have thought about different different things. And instead, he just wanted to make sure that his rival didn't pick up a win. And you saw that same mentality shine through in the race as well on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, 100%. This is, uh, Mark, this is Mark Marquez being Mark Marquez, as simple as that. Um, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things here. First of all, I think... Uh, um, his perhaps his biggest objective was to get ahead of Maverick Vinales um, because Maverick Vinales starts off as the main rival in the cha- in the championship, and so beating Maverick would be the most important thing. And if you could catch Fabio, that would be fantastic. But that would be a bonus. But I think first of all, that was his first objective: get in front of Maverick. Because if he finishes in front of Maverick, then he makes Maverick's life uh, uh, really difficult in the championship. Uh, secondly, you know, we weren't we weren't surprised. I do wonder. I mean, I have a theory about the crash because I mean, apart from the fact that he was pushing like an absolute berserker, um, the the other thing is we heard. Uh, Danilo Petrucci explained about the rear tyres, um, about how the new Michelin has changed. Uh, he said, the way that we have to turn the Ducati is with the tyre. We have to slide the tyre to get it round the corner. Um, but these new Michelins, they don't slide as smoothly or as, as, as consistently as the old ones. They have, they have more grip and as a consequence, they're more difficult to actually slide. And I actually wonder if this was a contributory factor that um, we all know that you know Marquez turns the bike by sliding the rear there's all of that spectacular footage um, maybe he was trying to do that and the bike sort of because it, it, what happened was the rear got out of line and then it sort of bit and spat him off uh, old fashioned high, uh, high side style so I think I think it's going to be interesting to see if this is a more permanent uh, fixture sort of thing, if this makes the rest of the season more difficult for him as well. If these new Michelins have that little bit more grip and are a little bit more difficult to control uh, control the slide, uh, it would change the way that he has to ride. 
Yeah, and they definitely did help the Yamahas. We saw that. And Dave, you mentioned Vinal is there and Mark may be thinking of him as the main title rival. We'll just talk quickly about Maverick because there's some interesting bits in his race before we move on to talk about Fabio and, and winning his first race. But Neil, with Vinales during this race, we saw him really put a lot of focus on qualifying the start. And then his tire choice was an interesting one because he obviously wanted to try and do something different. And it may not have paid off by winning the race, but we didn't see him fall you know, to 10th place on the opening lap like we'd seen at times last year. Yeah, I think on the face of it, it looks like uh, ah, Maverick's suffering from the same old issues and he hasn't really got over that inability to go like hell consistently during the first 10 laps. However, I think if you look at it a little closer, um, it was a pretty impressive display. And you could say that Maverick's tire choice firstly drew Marquez in and forced the mistake on lap five. Uh, and then secondly, I thought he was actually pretty impressive in the second half of the race, as he normally is. That's no great surprise. But considering he was using the soft front tire, um, he was able to, to manage it quite well and, and overcome those early front end moments. Um get faster as the race went on when he saw that Maverick was or, sorry when he saw that Mark was behind him he gradually or started to up his pace a little bit and suddenly if you're Mark Maverick isn't quite coming towards you as closely as the other guys had been before and you start to maybe get a little bit more aggressive on the throttle perhaps so yeah I think you there is an argument to be made that Maverick's riding drew Mark into two big mistakes and yeah we, David and I were talking on, on Saturday during FP4. Maverick went out with a soft front, soft rear, which ended up being his tire choice for the race. Only Rossi went with that, um, that choice. And he basically did a little practice, st uh, start for what was going to happen on Sunday. And he went out and he, he nailed it on, in FP4. He nailed the start, had a great start, had a great first lap, but I think he had three, he stated three massive moments, um, that, nearly ended his race but he managed to bring it back from the brink and uh, 20 points with his main championship rival out I mean it has to be a massive massive success for, for Maverick this, this weekend yeah and good for Maverick as well because we've seen so many times in the past where it's been those early season rounds that have been the issue for him and then he comes good when the pressure's gone later in the year but if he's able to do that with the pressure on big indicator of what he could do this year and David as I said we'll, we'll keep it pretty short and sweet on Maverick just because there's other stories that I think are more interesting from the weekend and obviously the big other story from apart from Mark's injury was that Fabio Quattararo finally won his first Grand Prix and I, I was talking to Neil on Sunday night about it and I said to Neil has there ever been more of an anticlimactic first win for a rider you know we've been waiting for Fabio to win for what seems like an age it's been since basically Hareth last year he made a big step at that round and then all the way through last summer he was strong and then the flyaways he was in a position to win races it was almost as if you took it for granted that he had become this Grand Prix winner again or MotoGP winner again and uh, you know whenever he finally wins that first race there wasn't the, sh the sense of shock or surprise that you get when most riders win their first Premier Class Grand Prix yeah, no, I mean, it, it was no surprise that he won a race. Like you say, we've been waiting for him to win a race. It was just when it was going to happen. Um, no surprise that he would win at Jerez either, either because he was so, so strong here last uh, last year. You know, that was his, what, his fourth MotoGP race. And he was quite clearly in the podium battle uh, until his quick shifter broke. So, yeah, no surprise at all. Um, I think perhaps the difference is... 
I mean, the other thing is so much happened. So much happened during this race. It was a weird atmosphere. There's no fans. Uh, there's, um, um, you know, the, the, the paddock is closed down. Uh, Marquez falls off, um, uh, breaks his arm. He's, he's quite clearly badly injured. So there's so many other things happening. Uh, Paul Aspargo finishes uh, six. The KTM suddenly looks good. All of these things are going on. They... In a way, it distracts a little bit from uh, from Fabio's win. Distracts, not detracts, because you know it was a, just a, a, a stunning ride, a really, really strong and powerful ride. Um, but yeah, there was. I think there was just too much going on for us to for us to notice it. And also, I think especially that the atmosphere. I don't know about because Neil, you were there, but the. I mean, it must have been a strange atmosphere as well because I mean normally when they cross the line there's a huge roar from the crowd and there's the cheers in the in, in the press room and, and everything else um, but now there's nothing nothing what, what <laughs> happens yeah exactly there's nothing you said it Dave uh, I went over to the, the edge of the media centre which is closest to pit lane to look out the window to see the riders cross the line and uh, yeah they were getting waves from their, their pit crew on pit wall um, the marshals were coming out but yeah absolutely like normally you have everyone coming onto the pit street and surrounding pit wall in front of the podium you've got cheers you've got noise there's well it's always difficult to or in recent years it's been difficult to decipher just how many people attend the Hareth Grand Prix but uh, we believe that there's somewhere in the region of 100,000 people there normally so yeah it was it was very bizarre um, it was like a, a pre-season test that, that's how I would best describe it it's a, it's a circuit where uh, there's very little there, there's basically TV people very few media basically photographers a few people that work for, for Dorna uh, and team personnel there's no one else there um, and yeah no atmosphere so I think that can, contributes to, to Steve's feeling that uh, it was uh, it was slightly underwhelming yeah I'd like you to say that to uh, our good colleague and friend Thomas Bojard and see what he has to say about that <laughs> Steve <laughs> but, but yeah I, I get it. it it was strange circumstances to win your first race in but uh, yeah it doesn't, doesn't detract from the achievement yeah, I think it's also worth noting that uh, while circuit attendance figures can be a little bit questionable, so can podcast listener figures. So the most important thing is to make sure that you put in a review to the Paddock Pass podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And a five-star review certainly makes it a lot easier for everyone to find our show. But uh, Dave, just uh, going on from what Neil said there, obviously, you know, as I said, it, it for me... It was just that sense of, you know, this is a, a massive moment, as Neil said, like for French fans, for French journalists, for even for like Hervé Pancherat, he was talking in terms of just how big of a moment this was for France to finally have another Premier Class win. But um, Dave, what what does it actually mean whenever there's a country that suddenly has this uh, you know potential superstar? And obviously, we've known that Fabio has that potential for around about a year, but it, he really did just come back from the brink to be able to do what he's been able to do in the, in the Petrona squad. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's huge. The, the, basically, uh, Fabio Quartararo was on the front page of L'Equipe, which is the, the France's biggest sports uh, sports newspaper, um, to be on the front page, you know, to be the cover image of the, uh, of the biggest newspaper is just massive. It's... Um, it, yeah, it, it's incomparable. It's really good. It's 
really good for Dora as well because it means that um, more people will watch in France. Uh, it means that Dora can ask more money for the for, for the TV rights. Uh, it's good for the for the popularity of the sport. It's good for uh, motorcycling in general. More people will will watch motorcycle racing because they've got a local hero to cheer for. Uh, more people will be interested in, in in motorcycling in general. So yeah, I mean it's it's, it's it's just it's, there are no downsides to this. It's really good, and also Fabio is a really nice, likable lad. He's he's a he's a funny lad. There's no downsides to this at all, Dave. You've clearly never gone camping at Le Mans for the MotoGP race. I remember <laughs> doing that in 2007, and it was the most harrowing experience of my life. So I can only imagine how bad it's going to be whenever you've got a French winner of Premier Class races and a man that's going to have that sense of expectation going forward. But uh, Neil. Obviously, it's a big moment for Fabio's career, but this is a huge moment for his team as well. That's a team that, you know, 18 months ago was set up and, you know, there was no sense of expectation there, but we've seen that there's also been no stone left unturned. They've been really able to make sure that they put together a good team, put together a good budget, and they just got all their ducks in a row. And when you look at how strong of a job they've done it's not just in the Premier Class. It's also what they've done in Moto3 as well, with John McPhee winning races and being able to be a regular front runner. And then they've also got their Moto2 team. Like this is this is a full-fledged, all-class effort. Yeah, no, it's um, it's testament to the, the sort of professionalism and the organizational skills, the recruitment skills uh, of, of that team of Wilco Zielenberg and, and Johan Stigefeldt. They basically put the put the team together in 2018. Um, and it's testament to Fabio. It was it was a it was a splendid ride. Um, and it was impressive in that he kind of seemed a bit pissed off most of the weekend. You know, he was talking about how he was finding it difficult to adapt to the 2020 M1. He's fast on it for sure, but he was saying that he was finding it quite difficult to ride and it was, wasn't just coming as naturally to him as last year's bike was. Um, but yeah, he didn't really look like he was, he was in the hunt in FP4. Um, didn't get a great start, got, uh, overtaken by the two Pramac Ducatis on the first and second lap, I think, um, Miller and Banyaya. But we didn't see any signs of panic. Um, and how many times have we heard Yamaha riders complain about trying to get past Ducati guys? Fabio got past him in the minimum fuss. Didn't seem to take him any time at all. We didn't see him having to do anything wild to get by them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Alberto Puj, um, in his track report on Monday, made the claim, the bold claim that Marquez uh, would have caught Fabio if there had been four or five more laps because he was one second faster than Fabio. Well, actually, like, if you look at the timing screens and the timing sheets, uh, Mark was faster than Fabio, but it was two, three, four tenths most uh, on certain laps. So Fabio was running at a fine pace. Um, and let's not forget that, what was it, three years ago, how disastrous Hareth was for Yamaha with Michelin. They've made such a massive step forward with uh, with the design of the bike, with the electronics, adapting it to these tires. Um, the Yamaha, certainly in, in, in these kind of conditions, now looks like the bike to have. Yeah, and uh, just to give everyone a little bit of a reminder of one of the shows we did during the lockdown, we actually did a Fabio Quattraro special, and it was pretty much because we knew that at some stage during the course of the season, and as David said, probably as early as Hareth, that we were going to have Fabio finally winning that race, and uh, be sure to give that a listen. But uh, David, Neil mentioned it there about how untroubled 
Quadraro had it at times during the course of that race. Obviously, we talked about Vinales as well, a really strong performance from Maverick as well. It did show how good the package of the Yamaha was. Frankie Morbidelli had a really good weekend as well at times. But one Yamaha didn't, Dave. And it was Valentino Rossi. And he really struggled all the way through the weekend. And after such a long layoff, do you think is that a little bit of an indicator of what we can expect going forward from Rossi? Or do you think when the rust starts to come off that he'll be able to adapt himself to this a little bit better? Or is this literally just that new Michelin rear tire and he's really struggling just to get used to it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, this is what Valentino Rossi is capable of at the mo- uh, at the moment because uh, he just can't get the rear tire to work. It won't work the way that he wants it. He's always ridden really, really stiff tires. He's always liked a stiff tire uh, uh, and a hard tire, and that's been the way that he's been able to uh, uh, to to race. This is not a stiff tire; it's a it's a softer tire. Um, it spreads a little bit more, um, and uh, he he just hasn't gotten his head round how to go fast on it. Now, the, the the most remarkable thing about Valentino Rossi's career is that he has adapted to so many different bikes, so many situations, so many different changes in technology, uh, bikes, tyres, everything. So uh, we can hope, uh, or you might reasonably expect him to get his head around it at some point, Um the problem is, you know, he is 41. There are only 13 races. Um, it, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult. I think it's going to be quite a tough season for him. The good thing is, uh, you know, next race is at Jerez, exactly the same circuit. What that means is, uh, Rossi said, they tried all sorts of things to try to find some competitiveness, to try to find some speed. Hadn't worked. Uh, but that means that they go into the coming weekend with a much smaller, shorter list of things to try. They've rule, already ruled out a bunch of things so they can uh, move, you know, they, they can change directions. They can uh, uh, look at all of the things, uh, well, uh, uh, other ways, uh, other s- possible solutions. Um, that, I think, will make it a little bit, well, it gives it makes them a little bit more optimistic uh, because they've already done a lot of, uh, they've done the wrong thing a lot of times. Now there's, 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 there's fewer choices to make. Yeah, and I think as as Dave said there, Neil, it's it's hope rather than expectation as to when Rossi can turn things around. But the good thing from as David said is that we're back to Hareth and conditions are going to be pretty much the exact same as they have been. It's been so constant all the way through the time we've been down here. And this morning there was a little bit of rain and some thunder in the air, but that's literally been the only time where there's been anything strange. Everything else has been pretty much universal. It starts off at about twenty five degrees in the morning by about half 10 it's well into the 30s and then by noon it's you know high 30s at that stage so it is going to be that same constants all the way through next week ideal for trying to find the solution yeah ideal for trying to find a solution but when one of your solutions is that the temperature of the rear tire is getting far too high um it does make you you wonder whether they'll find a solution because um it's been a similar problem that rossi's been having now for for quite some time um and there's been no real no real progress and you know the proof is in the in the result sheet you've got two guys that are, are having vastly superior results um and yeah i mean i, I was quite find it quite troubling actually that uh, when Marquez was coming through the field Rossi just pulled over uh, and when he was asked about it afterwards he was like oh you know yeah I saw him coming through rapidly and I 
didn't want to cause any problems, I think is, is what he said. Or I didn't want to create any problems. And so I just moved to one side. And you just think that's that's Valentino Rossi saying that. Like, well, you know, just basically completely aware that nothing is nothing's possible, nothing's going to happen. No, no fight basically whatsoever, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it does make you, it makes me slightly concerned. Well, not concerned, but surprised that he's, he's so assured, uh, and so sure that he's going to continue into next year because he said back in, in February, um, at the Sepang test, he was going to give it a couple of races and it all depended on him being competitive. Has lockdown really been, has spending four months at home really been so bad for him that, he just thinks like, I can't do this. I have to prolong my career for another year, another two years. Um, quite possibly. Um, it, it's something that he, it's not a prospect that he doesn't look forward to. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can't see him turning around at Harris. And the problem is with, with MotoGP now, you know, if Rossi was having, if Rossi was this far off the leaders in the 800 CC era, he'd be finished inside the top six, maybe even finished in the top four. Uh, but we saw on, on Saturday, FP3, Paul Spargo was 11th and was 0.4 off the quickest time. You know, if you're, if you're more than half a second off, you're, you're nowhere at the moment. And uh, sadly, that's where he is. Yeah, we saw that all the way through the weekend where it was, what, a second basically separated the field in qualifying. And Dave, time waits for no man. And that's certainly what we're starting to see with Rossi again. And there's always been those flashes in the past where he somehow managed to find the spark again, find the form. But, you know, this shortened season is going to make it very condensed, very difficult to do that. And put your team manager hat on. If you're after winning your first ever Grand Prix as a team owner, do you want Rossi on your bike next year to replace Quattro? Uh To be, well, to be perfectly frank, there's a lot of reasons to not want him on the bike. Um, uh, I mean, the good thing about Valentino Rossi is you'll never get so much uh, uh, press and media and fan interest, um, even if Fabio goes on to win every race for the rest of the season, than you will simply by putting Valentino Rossi on, because he is still an absolute megastar. Um, he's still extremely popular. He's still extremely, uh, you know, he's still a great rider. Um but there are a number of downsides to it. The fact that he, you know, he, he's not going to win. I don't think he's going to win a championship. He might win a race. He might get uh, get the old podium. But uh, even then, I think it's been three. He's won three races since uh, since in the Michelin era. The last when was the last race he uh, he won? Two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen. Seventeen. That's a long. Yeah, that's a long time. That's that's that, that, that's a long time. So it's um uh it's good for PR, but I don't think Patronus really interested in PR. They're in they're in it to win it. They're in for success. They you know they they want things like Fabio Quartararo winning races. So um yeah, it's 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 not the it's not the win win that it might have been. And uh, Neil, we'll move away from Yamaha. And we'll move to a team that. I'll be honest, had a big win this weekend, Ducati. You know, whether you look at uh, a manufacturer that had a big win, Ducati, because this was a round where there was really very little you could have expected from Ducati. It was always been a tough track for them. It's always been a tough track for Davi. He's coming back from a broken collarbone. And, you know, he struggled through the weekend. He didn't look fast. He didn't look great. His pace was okay. But the whole way through the week, he just chipped away at it and whenever the points get given out on Sunday, he's able to finish up with a trophy as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think 
we have to take the Marquez injury into consideration when looking at Ducati. Had Marquez finished second, you'd be saying, uh, you know, they're, they're, their objective is to win the championship. And if Marquez finishes the race, you're going to say, he's he's going to win the championship. Like, just the shape he's in. But in this kind of unique situation where he's injured, uh, you think, wow, Davizioso genuinely will not have a better chance ever to win the championship than right now. Um, and, you know, you got to love the guy. I mean, like he's, he comes into this weekend, it's three weeks after he's broken his left collarbone. Uh, he's in, as Matt Oxley described in one of his pieces for Motorsport magazine, uh, he's in the, like trench warfare with Ducati over his contract negotiations. He hasn't worked out how this Michelin tire works for his bike and his riding style. He's still not riding automatically. He's having to think about it. He starts Wednesday at the test, miles off outside the top 15, I think. And you're thinking, oh God, this could be bad. His championship might be over before it even gets started. And the guy comes away with what is probably the best possible result that he could have got. And... um I personally think Dovi gets too little recognition. I mean, he's been doing this for like three years now, and yes, he hasn't been able to beat Mark Marquez, but no one else has in that time. He's been the best of the rest for three years running. and um, Just pay the man. Ducati, get your checkbook out and pay the man. I don't care about any of this economic downturn nonsense. He's a, he's a great rider. Sign him up. Yeah, like I remember years ago when... You know, Davi was on the Ducatis as they started to make their progress, as they started to get better. He was thrilled. You know, you could see it in him. But then over the last few years, you've seen it where, wait a second, they've gone and they've paid Lorenzo 25 million and I've beaten him. They've gone and, you know, they've hired Jack Miller and I've beaten him. You know, like Davi just has had that chip on his shoulder and now's the chance for him. This is the, this is the one opportunity he's going to get because, you know, you are going to need a bit of luck to beat Marquez. Davi's shown that. He's been, as you said, Neil, the only man able to take the fight consistently to him. He's won hand-to-hand battles. He's done everything you can do, but just hasn't been able to win the championship. This is his chance. And the calendar's going to suit him. And you look at Bruno and Austria, two very strong rounds for Ducati. You know, you'd expect Davi to be able to, if he can survive next weekend's round, second round in, in Hareth, and come away with, you know, a top, a top four finish. You know, if he's able to come away with a podium, it's fantastic. If he's able to come away with 13 points for fourth, it's actually pretty good as well. Because then you go to the tracks where he's going to be strong. And obviously you expect that Quattraro and Vinales are going to be strong at a lot of circuits as well. But you also think that, you know, Ducati's going to have a rider that can take points off those boys as well because Miller looks in great form. Petrucci's going to potentially come good. Bagnaia looked very good at times this weekend. So Ducati's got that strength and depth and that's even before you look at someone like Johan Zarco that could spring a surprise or anything like that. So they do have that strength and depth and David, I think for me, if I was to lay my odds for the championship as it stands right now with everything we know from what we saw in the winter and what we saw this weekend in Hareth, I'm putting Davi as my favourite. Yeah, I mean that, that that that's that's a very it's a very good shout because as you say, you know, we've got Bruno and Austria uh, coming up. Uh, it wouldn't be 
uh, unreasonable to expect Dobby to do the double at um, uh, in Austria. It stands a very good chance of winning in in Brno, um, and as you say, a podium, uh, another podium, or even a third place, or even a fourth place, would be a really really good start to the championship. And if I was Simone Battistella, uh, the Dobby's manager, what I would have done on Monday morning is uh, WhatsApped but a uh, WhatsApped a photo of the uh, of the podium trophy to uh, to Claudio Domenicali, um, who uh, just pointing out what's you know what Dobby's worth yeah that's probably why you'd be a terrible manager Dave because <laughs> Simone's thinking in terms of you know what let's wait until Dobby wins the championship and then we can really squeeze them hard but you know it is it is that strange one where you know and we've said it the whole way through there's been a load of shows that we've talked about Dobby and Ducati and different things Dovi's best chance of winning is with Ducati, and Ducati's best chance of winning is with Dovi. So it's always going to be most likely that they come to some sort of an agreement where both of them are pissed off, but both of them just decide, you know what, this is the best thing for all of us. And, you know, everything that's happened in her eth is just going to make sure that, you know, that's magnified, that need to get everything sorted, because, you know, as good of a job as Jack Miller did, and Jack was fantastic in a he was he was probably the most comfortable Ducati rider out there but you know they still need to keep Dovi and, and we saw that as Neil said Dave just all the way through the weekend just how good of a job he does he doesn't get he doesn't get flustered he doesn't go around throwing his helmet around the garage if things aren't going well he was 17th fastest in the in the opening morning of the test and he just kept plugging away yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, this championship is very much going to be about consistency, precisely because it's so compressed. And if there is one rider who is consistent, um, it's Dovichosa. I mean, that that's how he has been so strong in the in the past three years. It's, it's how he has finished as a runner-up three years in a row. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can totally see the you see Dovi just grinding grinding away at it um uh it's going to be interesting i mean that we have a whole new dynamic without mark marquez in the championship we have a whole new dynamic in uh, in the championship and especially once mark comes back and starts winning races because he's going to win races um and he's going to finish second uh, at times it's going to be interesting to see um how he integrates with the whole thing how that sort of all mess uh, mixes up and in that case when you could be finishing you know you could be winning races one weekend and and way off the podium the next um i think the most consistent rider is going to shine through and the most consistent rider so far has been uh, dobby he's, he's uh, diesel desmo yeah, and uh, there's a couple of couple of listeners that actually asked those questions about Dovi. So Stu and Dennis, I hope that's able to answer your questions about Dovi. And Neil, we'll just quickly talk about the other Ducatis because we mentioned how good of a job the Pramac riders did, but we didn't mention how the weekend had gone for Danilo Petrucci. A big crash on Wednesday and he never really, really recovered from it. Yeah, big crash on Alicia Spargaro's oil at turn 11. That's where Rin's head is off. Um, Petrucci got knocked around a bit, um, said he was seeing stars, which is slightly concerning, gives a hint that he might have been slightly concussed. Uh, I was reading quotes today, apparently he had gastroenteritis on Sunday as well, so it just was not his weekend, you know, real weekend to forget. Um, but as you said, Steve, Pramac guys were great. I think Peko Bagnaia looked like the, the most improved rider uh, of you know, from the off season, um, I think he, he had a pretty lousy off season. To remember, if I remember correctly, going to see him one of the nights at the Qatar test and just thinking, oh my, like I think Banyan might have to move 
to you know find a bike that suits him because this just isn't working whatsoever but he had a pretty impressive race qualified brilliantly um, and Miller I mean um, Miller um, basically found that um, the device which connects it's basically a metal device at the end of his handlebar which um, uh, is there to um, to protect his front brake lever basically he pushes the edge of the handlebars a lot to steer um, and to control the bike and the edge of his of his hand was basically on this this metal protector or the base of this metal protector and that was just causing some numbness so that's what he thought was causing some numbness um and he said that that really diminished his his feeling the the kind of the, the second part of the race however he said that the gp20 was working great he said the the way it managed its tires the way it put its power down is massive improvement felt a, a lot less aggressive as well to ride than the last year's machine um and yeah miller never really goes well at harath i mean his, his his performance there last year was pretty wretched um even going back to moto 3 we were talking about this the other day stevie was never you know scoring wins there in moto 3 um that bodes really well um and like we said about dovi once you go to austria once you go to Brno, if we take last season's form as a as a kind of barometer miller's going to be right there in the fight for uh, for for wins possibly there yeah, and I think it's quite interesting with Jack because when you listen to him, David, he hasn't really been talking too much in terms of the problems that the other Ducati riders have seen about the bike sliding, the tyre and all these kind of issues that they're having. Jack's always kind of, even though he's always looked loose on the bike, his his dirt track background's always meant that he's used the rear brake an awful lot more than other riders. He puts a lot of force through that. And that's how he's always tried to generate the turning motion on the bike, as opposed to some of the other Ducati riders that will try and use the power to do that. So maybe just being able to do that with the brake rather than just using the sheer grunt could be something that helps Jack as well. He's just able to keep that bike turning a little bit easier than some of the other riders. Yeah, I mean, possibly if he can if he can um, help the bike to turn on entry by sliding the rear a little bit on entry uh, uh then you can carry that uh you know that, that that slide through the corner as i said earlier like the the problem with this michelin tire is it doesn't slide as easily and so possibly uh, uh jack's experience with you know his experience with, with motocross and dirt track and especially with dirt track um, means that he is able to slide he's used to sliding the bike a little bit more easily a little bit more control he's got that feel he's got that that fraction more feel in the rear and it helps him to turn more easily so yeah it's, it's going to be it's going to be interesting and I, I think also you know Jack Miller could, could end up we're talking about Dobby's uh, Dobby's championship Do, uh, Jack Miller could end up sort of messing up Dobby's championship because uh, I mean of the three coming up Bruno and the two Austrias you'd have to say that Jack Miller has a very very good chance of winning at least one of those yeah I mentioned earlier that uh, Ducati will have riders that could take points off the other manufacturers title rivals but obviously as Dave said as well Jack looks like he's primed to win a race he looks like he's made all those steps and uh, he's certainly going to be a contender but Neil we've a question in from Liam O'Reilly and I'm going to just take some of some of what Liam says not the full question but uh, basically given that this is an ideal scenario for anyone trying to beat Marquez in the championship what's the chances that we see team orders from any manufacturer will we see a mapping five notification coming in <laughs> Uh, I would say it's a bit early to be talking about team orders to be honest we've had one race out of 13 if a situation transpires six seven races into the year I wouldn't be surprised to see some formation flying but at this stage no I I don't think so Uh, and if we're talking about Ducati I mean 
Miller's signed up to be a factory Ducati rider next year. Dovizioso still isn't signed up. So I don't see if, if Jack is proven to be consistently faster than Dovi, then it's, it's not necessarily such a bad thing for the, uh, for the factory Ducati management. Dave, and we've got a question for you from Portage Media. And uh, what they've asked is, how is Alex Marquez feeling about his point scoring ride? And what's he feeling for the rest of the, the upcoming rounds? Uh, well, I was in his debrief on Sunday night, and to be perfectly frank, he seemed quite calm, quite normal, you know, upset about his brother. Um, uh, he was pleased to have finished the race, uh, scored some points. Um, he was less pleased about having the second race at Jerez because he says, you know, like as a rookie, what you want to do is ride at as many different tracks as possible to get experience of the bike and to try to understand how the bike behaves. Um I think Alex, I mean, like, I think Alex Marquez uh, has a very realistic uh, I conception of how competitive he is. He understands that he's not going to win the championship this year, uh, but he's, you know, he's definitely going to be, it, it, he, his objective is just to learn and to go faster. Um, it looks very different from as a, from the fan perspective, perhaps, but, um, I, I think he'll be reasonably, oh, he'll be as disappointed as you would expect someone to be, um, a, a racer to be who doesn't win a race. Um, but I think he's more or less, uh, he's, he's probably more or less where he sort of where he expects to be. You know, he learns a lot. That was important. Yeah, and uh, Neil, just uh, another question for you. We've got this in from Alan Douglas and also from Dirtsar. And uh, Dirtsar had asked us a couple of questions that we've actually just managed to cover during the course of the podcast. But uh, this question relates to what's happened at Aprilia after all their promising start to testing. It seems it's been a surprise how the opening weekend in Hareth went. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great, was it? Um, Alicia Spargo came away from the Sepang test saying that this bike can fight for the podium. Uh, I think he came away from the Wednesday test um, saying that the bike can fight for the top positions. Uh, Wednesday test was great. He was fast in the morning. He was fast in the afternoon. Um, but race weekend just never really, he never got going. Um, and um, I didn't get to speak to Alex Alicia over the weekend, but uh, I caught up later with what he had said in his debrief on Sunday and uh, it seems that Aprilia has had quite difficulty for a long time um, and Alicia in particular has had difficulty for quite a while uh, getting the most out of a new tyre in qualifying um, and also at the start of a race so basically he'll, he'll start quite slowly and quite tentatively but what that bike does um, is take care of its rear tyre and he'll be able to stay consistent and when other people's tyres drop off they get stronger towards the end of the race so he um, he crashed out at the start of the race um, but felt that had he kept going he could have probably been in that fight for third place with Davizioso Miller um, Morbidelli and Paul Espargaro um, just because he had he had the pace and they weren't going particularly quickly um you know pace compared to fp4 was was you know maybe a second slower or so so um i i think on the on the face of it it was a, a disastrous weekend but if you believe what they said on sunday um it was a big mistake but it could have been could have been a good result well that's what's going to be interesting about having the back-to-back we're able to really see whether or not yeah this is the case bullshitting and uh, well, I'll tell you what, it's a bit like in testing. We always hear how good everyone is in testing and we always hear how good everything could have been after an early race crash. 
So we really get to see whether Aleish has made that step forward with the Aprilia. Obviously, Bradley Smith on the other bike as well. So we'll be able to see whether or not they have made that genuine progress. But Neil, you mentioned Paul as well there. And I'm going to ask you about Paul because I'm going to ask David about Brad Binder's performance. But uh, Paul rode a very good race as well, showed the progress that KTM's made. Yeah, I think... um we, I said that I think uh, Pekka Banyaya was the, the most improved rider on Sunday's evidence. Still a bit early to judge, but I mean, for KTM to be where they were, one second off the podium at Jerez in those track temperatures, in those track conditions, um, and not just Paul to be there, Binder to be showing such stellar pace, Miguel Oliveira to have a really strong finish inside the top 10. Iker Lekwona was showing at the front in some sessions. It was like, wow, these bikes have... They've really come on. They look like proper motorcycles now. Yeah, and I think it was in the opening practice day, it really looked like Eker had made that step as well. Obviously, slightly cooler conditions, the bike working a bit better. But uh, as you said, the other three riders, very impressive. And Dave, you know, we mentioned about Fabio's race. And you know, as I said, somewhat a little bit underwhelming. But that's probably because we didn't see too much of him. Another rider we didn't really see too much of on track was Brad Binder. And then whenever you go back through the timesheets and when you look at, you know, or when you talk to writers and their debriefs, you're really able to see that, you know what, we mightn't have seen too much of him on track, but he's left a big impression on his opening MotoGP race because his pace through that race, really impressive. Yeah, I mean, his pace was absolutely ferocious and you don't realize it until you actually go uh, uh, and look at the timesheets. Uh, he crossed the line in 13th, I think, and um, that's a fair old way down. But when you actually, uh, if you go back, take out his, uh, his crash lap where he lost 26 seconds and then sort of average out the pace, then uh, he would have, uh, he was on pace for uh, a second place. He, uh, I worked it, you know, I stuck it in a spreadsheet, uh, put together the 23 best laps and um, he is 3.4 seconds slower than Quartararo, but two seconds faster than Vinales. And if you sort of, you know, pretend he doesn't crash and, and average out the laps before and after his, uh, his He's running, uh, he's running wide. Uh, then he crosses the line 3.4 seconds behind Quartararo and 1.2 seconds ahead of Vinales. So it's just, um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's not a proper comparison because, uh, you know, he was running wide. He wasn't, he didn't have to fight with anyone else. He only had to overtake a few people. But even then, to be able to run that pace that consistently is just remarkable. Yeah, and uh, Neil, we've seen plenty of riders come through in their early races as a MotoGP rider and leave a really big impression, just like what Brad did. And it does set a scene of a rider that just could make that step forward. And that's where next weekend's going to be really interesting to see how he does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a, in some ways a bit reminiscent of um, the first race last year where Quartararo stalled on the grid and had to start from pit lane and then just went like a house on fire. I think he set the fastest lap on his, in his MotoGP debut in Qatar last year and eventually burnt out his tires. But showed that remarkable speed i think binder um wow what a weekend he had what a really impressive performance um and i mean the thing that really stood out for me was paul espargaro talking after the race on sunday and having spent the majority of the race behind the ducatis he said our bike is actually 
better than the Ducati, apart from the top speed deficit. The Ducati is much stronger on the straights and really difficult to overtake. But Espargaro felt the turning of his machine. Obviously, KTM have a pretty radically different chassis for 2020. That seems to have helped him a lot. He said turn five was the most noticeable area, being able to hold the exact line that he needed to get the good drive on under the back straight. He said punch that he's got going out of corners. The braking ability of that bike has always been a strong point and it seems to have very much been retained. It seems like a very complete package and, and we're not just seeing Espargaro now uh, doing things with it. I mean, I think we're going to see dry weather podiums for KTM this year. Yeah, and uh, KTM, obviously, David, they've had quite an extensive test program compared to everyone else just because they're allowed to with the concessions rules and uh, certainly making good use of having you know Danny Pedrosa or Mickey Calio or you know any number of other test riders that uh, KTM have at different times but uh, they really have been able to make that genuine step forward and it's what you expect to see from KTM because you know not so much money's no object but they're willing to put their resources in to try and make progress. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they don't enter a championship thinking, oh, we'll give it a go, see where, where it is, and uh, hope we have some fun doing it. They enter a championship with the uh, expectation that uh, they will win it at some point. That w- That is the very point of, of entering it. And they've made some, I mean, they've, they've made some very smart moves. They've got this structure to bring riders through, which we're really starting to pay off now. Uh, you know, next year, we'll, in the factory team, we will have uh, two people or two riders with Brad Binner and Miguel Oliveira who've been KTM pretty much their entire careers. Uh, But again, I'm going to come back to this. The reason that they uh, made such a big step last year is basically just um, or is a lot of it is down to Danny Pedrosa because Danny Pedrosa has really cleaned up the the, the development program uh, before a lot of it came down to Paul Espargaro mm-hmm. first of all there was only two riders uh, uh, the, 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 there was only two riders on the grid that, or there were you know they they only had two riders they had Paul and uh, Bradley Smith um, it's much more difficult to develop then they, of course they hired Joan Zarco and that didn't work out um, but what uh, what Danny has been able to do is during the testing program select the package of parts which work together because it's not that when you get a new swing arm the new swing arm might work or it might not work but it you know a motorcycle is not a a, a collection of parts a motorcycle is, is is a is a very holistic device if you stick a swing arm in with uh, one linkage and a particular fork uh, front fork it might be terrible but if you know you change the front fork and you have a you you set the, the linkage up slightly differently uh, and uh, you, you have a slightly different chassis all of a sudden that's uh, that that uh, that swing arm can be absolutely fantastic and figuring out all of these multiple combinations of parts is the really really hard part and that is what Danny Pedrosa has been managing to do to get the correct package to the factory riders to be competitive yeah and Dave just to follow on what you're asking about what, what you're saying about Danny Pedrosa I just want to ask you a question about the benefit of Pedrosa not in terms of his feedback not in terms of how talented he is or anything like that but in terms of the fact that he doesn't seem to test with an ego, when you talk to KTM, they just talk in terms of he's very matter-of-fact about everything. He's not trying to, and you can think of some other test riders we've seen in recent years that want to go out and just prove I'm faster than 
the race riders or it's a, a it's you know at someone like bradley smith with aprilia you're coming from being a racer to going to being a test rider when you're still quite young in your career and thinking you know what i want to get back on the grid so you've got that point to prove whereas pedroza doesn't really seem to have any point to prove anytime you see him or any anytime you talk to the people within ktm he's just the only point to prove he has is let's make this bike better yeah exactly i mean he, he genuinely you know he's had a fantastic career already he's won a lot of races he, he he was never a champion but you can't you know not everyone gets to be champion there can only be one champion a year um uh, he he was champion in 125s champion in 250s uh, uh his success now is vicarious it's through winning uh, it's through uh, putting a bike together which uh, someone else can become can win races and become a champion on that will be uh, Danny Pedro- that'll be down to Pan- Danny Pedrosa and that will be I think that w- Danny Pedrosa will get a lot of pleasure from that uh, a lot of satisfaction from that uh, but also it allows him to uh, to to do all this testing um, without actually having to speak to us Muppets because the one thing that he absolutely despised was the whole media side of it and, and the rest of it he, he wanted to ride motorbikes fast much like Casey Stoner uh, he didn't really care about it uh, and he didn't have the ego to just be fast all the time yeah just that's enough out of that Muppet anyway go on ahead Neil <laughs> yeah, speak for yourself David um, yeah no that's that's definitely true and, and just to follow on what you were saying get great satisfaction out of watching that bike get and achieve good results I think get great satisfaction watching that bike beat Honda is uh, another thing one of uh, Danny's uh, reasons you, you do get the impression he feels that he was slighted in his uh, final year there um, especially by a man that perhaps was his uh, manager for many years yeah and uh, obviously uh, that's uh, part of the intrigue of the paddock as well there's always these access to grind for different people there's always the motivations that go in behind the scenes but uh, just to to shift gears a little bit from what we're talking about at the moment obviously we've been uh, already as i said earlier on the show is going to be a long one potentially just because there's so much to talk about but i want to just bring a wrap to it pretty quickly in terms of what we saw in Hareth on, on that uh, racing weekend before we start to talk quickly just about next weekend as well but Neil you obviously have to take a very keen interest in Moto2 and Moto3 what was the the big takeaways for you from this weekend in the smaller classes? Uh, big takeaways was that I think Luca Marini looks like a really solid bet to be the, the championship favourite Moto2 however I think I'm start, I've been kicking myself a little bit because Tetsuda Nagashima is actually a much better rider than I give him credit for. Um, and in Moto3, uh, yeah, it's just typical Moto3, isn't it? I mean, you've got basically four or five guys that I think could be fighting for the championship this year. Um, and they were all figuring towards the front of the race in, uh, in Arethia. Arena Segura, McPhee, Arbolino. Vietti, I think all those guys are, are, are going to be pretty um, pretty on it, on the pipe uh, this year. So, yeah, that was my takeaway. Yeah, I think uh, everyone got a little bit of a surprise when we saw what uh, Nagashima was able to do this weekend, just because he was so good in Qatar, obviously enough coming through to win the race from the, what, the fourth, fifth row of the grid. And, um, you know, when you look at some of the other riders that went well in Qatar, they made a massive step back in Hareth but very different conditions he was still able to be very strong obviously Io is a very strong team in the Moto2 class they work very well together and you know 
he just looks like he's been able to take advantage of that and he looks like he's just made a big step forward and obviously the Moto2 class Dave is always a class where the team seems to have the biggest impact you know it's just about uh, obviously in in a class where you know almost everyone uses the same chassis everyone's got the same tires everyone's got the same engine it's the small details that make a big difference and uh, maybe with Nagashima we're seeing that again just a rider that's found the right team yeah exactly I mean it, it's absolutely true you always see the big teams uh, winning and dominating in uh, Moto2 because you know, they've got the best uh, engineers they've got the best crew chiefs they've got the best mechanics they've got um, uh, the most data which is also really really important um, uh, they, they are bare, they are the best at getting uh, a decent setup out of the bike and that's certainly uh, certainly it uh, one thing I found interesting about but well both Moto2 and Moto3 is um, the number of successful Japanese riders. It really looks like there's this, you know, another wave of Japanese riders coming through with Nagashima, with Ogura. Uh, Toba had a bit of a, uh, out of a, didn't have a fantastic uh, weekend, but uh, uh, there's a, a Suzuki um, uh, getting another pole. It was just really, it was, it was a really, really good, uh, good weekend. Um, and in Moto2, the, the, the most interesting prospect for me in Moto2 at the moment is Aaron Kanet, who is a rookie. Um, I think what was he eighth or something in um, uh, in Qatar and fifth I think uh, in uh, uh, Jerez. That is the sign of a good rider is to be fast straight away when they when they change classes. You know every great rider is, and so to see Kanet make the switch that that quickly I think is impressive and very 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 interesting. And again, it's a good structure. The Aspar structure is a really really solid structure. Yeah, Neil, just uh, moving on a little bit from what David said there, we we heard him talk about the Japanese riders coming through. Obviously, we've got a lot of riders over the course of the last three, four years that have come through the Asian Talent Cup system, but it really looks now that they're all in a position to really kick forward. You know, Agura, two podiums in the first two rounds. There's, you know, there's a real chance that for the first time in a very long time, that we've got genuine, fast Japanese riders, which is always good because when you look at the fact that so many manufacturers are Japanese, you want to have riders coming through from there as well as engineers, as well as you know technicians. You want to be able to have fast riders again. And Japan always, 125s especially, 250s, they were always able to produce good riders in those classes. And now finally it looks like we're able to get that again in Moto3. Yep, for sure. Uh, and certainly from what we've seen this year, um, Agura looks like a guy who could go very far indeed in his career. It's obviously early days to say this, just his second GP season, but um, yeah, he's uh, he's quite an impressive uh, young man um, and someone um, that works in his team once uh, made a comment to um, Matt Dunn, my commentary partner, says that yeah, he's... Uh, He's a very serious young man. He doesn't really smile very much. And I think that's just pers- like down to the fact that uh, he isn't really very satisfied unless he's uh, scoring good results. Um, and uh, if you look at the Moto3 Championship this year, um, Arenas has obviously got 50 points for winning two races, but Agura, I think, is sitting second on 30, uh, 36. 36 yeah. And then McPhee is on 16. Uh, sorry, 20 points behind them. So already, uh, Agura is really well placed to score a top three in the championship at the very least um, which is which is some going Dave and uh, Neil mentioned John McPhee and it was very, it was disappointing to see what happened to John at the end of the Moto3 race not disappointing in terms of 
results or anything like that. But it was just a rash move that he didn't have to try and make. And as the most, well, one of the most experienced riders in the class, and this is always a class where the experience counts for an awful lot. We've seen so many riders get into that point in, in their career where you kind of look at it and you say, if he doesn't win the championship this year, that could be his Grand Prix career finished. And McPhee's kind of in that group where you're thinking like, you know, you've got to get it done now. You've stayed in Moto3 all this time that you need to be able to win these races, win this championship. And that move that he tried to make in Hareth, it was just one of those moves from far too back. It, it looked like it was predetermined. I'm going to make this move into the last corner. And then he didn't adapt to what was going on around him. And then suddenly, you know, he's, he's unlucky to make contact, but I think it was Vietti that he made contact with. But, you know, he comes away with no points from when he really should have been able to walk away from Hareth with either a second or a third place finish. And suddenly you've got that real chance of winning, of putting yourself in a, in a position to try and challenge for the championship because, let's be honest, you're waiting for Arenas to have a bit of a slip up. Agura's in his second year, so it, it's going to be tough to, to keep that consistency. Whereas for someone like McPhee, you know, you don't, you don't expect that rash move. Yeah, I think uh, he was a little bit uh, frustrated because the lap before, he'd been absolutely superb um, um, because he, you could see him lining up the, the you know, the, the final corner coming out of there to cross the, to cross the line in the lead. He had it all sorted out. And then, um, uh, coming out of turn nine through, uh, uh, nine, 10, 11, um, you could see that he got frustrated because I think it was Arenas who came past him um, with quite uh, with an aggressive and very fast move through the through through turn eleven of the, the the fast corner and it sort of like threw him off a little bit and so he made a you know a bit of a wild move to try to get back and that put him that, that was it, as you say he was just way too optimistic um, uh, he would have been better off just accepting it settling for uh, settling for points as you say because he would have been better off with you know, 16, even 13 points rather than the zero he's walked away with. So, yeah, I think he's, he, yeah, it was a mistake. It was definitely a mistake. And I think he's, he's harmed his, his championship chances. Yeah, it was an optimistic move, Dave. And uh, it was optimistic of me as well. I think we'd be able to keep this show on the short side. But uh, just before we finish up, I want to ask you both one question. What are you looking forward to from the Andalusian Grand Prix, the second of these back-to-back races. So, Neil, what's the the one thing that for this weekend in any class that you're really looking forward to seeing or that you're interested in seeing what changes have happened? Uh, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing how each of the guys, each of the MotoGP men that finished on the podium react to the the situation, the situation of Mark Marquez not being there, of, I know they all came into this year believing that they could win the championship, but that crystallization that oh this is a this is maybe my best chance yet i know quadraro and vinales have long careers ahead of them but with marquez being the way he is this could be their best chance ever perhaps and i'm just excited to see whether even at this early stage of the championship you see some signs of pressure or one or two mistakes um and i think yeah it's going to be going to be very interesting do you do you continue attacking or or do you hold and, and get as many points on the board while Mark isn't here? Yeah, and I think that's definitely a, a very good shout because you know if an opportunity presents itself to win a championship, you got to take it. Exactly. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, Fabio, Maverick, and, and Andrea, I'll be watching you guys. And we're always watching those guys pretty closely <laughs> at the best times, but I think that's definitely going to be the case this weekend. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I mean, the, the, Neil makes a really good point about uh, the, the, the change in strategy. Without Marcus, it's a completely different championship. That means it's a completely different race. You don't, uh, you have to approach your race very, very differently. Uh, for me, uh, what I'm most interested in is seeing who makes the big improvements. Um, obviously, everyone's got a, uh, a race worth of, of data, and particularly, for example, Duque, particularly Dovizioso. Dovizioso said uh, he was happy to be on the podium, but he said, you know, we didn't have the we didn't have the speed. He had to work very, very hard uh, uh, for that podium um, uh, and managed to, to score it. So he's got to change his approach, make a different, uh, take a different, um, uh, try and figure out a solution to going fast around Jerez. So, so um, a, a rider like uh, like Dovichosa, there's one or two others, um, uh, to see how they change their approach, that's going to be really interesting. And honestly, secretly, the, most, the thing I'm most excited by, uh, about is seeing how Brower Bender can do um, uh, in a race where he doesn't uh, run, run wide at turn five and, uh, and lose 26 seconds. Yeah, heaven forbid, secretly, what I'm most excited about is I found a really good coffee shop that uh, does very good scrambled eggs. I was sitting down for FP1 watching it uh, in that coffee shop. So I'll probably do the same again this weekend. But I think uh, in terms of what I should be excited about, what well, you know, obviously it's just all about the racing. Um, I'm actually very excited to see what happens at Moto2 because for the first time in a long time, I'm genuinely excited about the class. I think we've got a ton of riders that can have good results, a ton of riders that can get to the front. Um, Neil, you mentioned Marini earlier on, looks like the early title favourite, like uh, I think a lot of us expected over the course of the winter. But I'm interested to see how all the other riders approach this weekend because we had a lot of riders that came to Hareth maybe a little bit off form, a little bit trying to prove what they could do from uh, a, a disappointing opening round of the year. And a lot of them spent the opening practice sessions just doing lots of runs, but not lots of laps. Whereas Marini went out in FP1 and he just drilled out, I think it was 19 flying laps that were all super fast, very consistent. And I'm interested to see how the other riders now approach this weekend, because obviously they've had a lot more mileage. And will they all go out and try and do a race simulation in FP1 or will they do it in FP2? And that's what I'm quite curious to see, because I think you could easily have five, six riders that are all very impressive in that Moto2 class at a rest for the for the third round of their championship so i'm interested to see how that goes and uh you know i think it's just exciting to have racing back and it's exciting to you know i, I thought on, on on sunday it was great to be able to switch on a race and not actually know what the result was it was the first time in four months that you aren't re-watching something you've seen already so i thought that was really exciting and uh, I, i'm pretty hopeful that we're going to have a good third round of the championship as well so i'm, I'm excited for that but it was riders on bikes, racing bikes, not someone sitting in a room with a video game controller and buttons. <laughs> that was that was amazing. Fuck me, I've seen enough of that over the last week while you've been playing the TT game here, Neil, and uh, you know, getting faster and faster, making progress. He's looking for that eSport crown. But uh, yeah, I think there's just there's lots of reasons to be excited for what we're going to see, and uh, there's lots of reasons to be excited as well for what we're going to have coming up on the Paddock Pass podcast over the next week while, because with the races coming thick and fast, it's going to become more and more important for all of our listeners just to send us all a tweet, send us all a message to be able just to get your questions in for shows, because it does add a lot of value to the show just to be able to have that. So make sure that uh, when you're sitting down watching any of the action over the course of the weekend, if there's anything that you want to see covered on the show, it may not be 
covered straight away, but we'll do our best over the course of the next few shows to be able to get as many of those answered as possible. So make sure to either tweet at Moto Matters for David Emmett, at Neil Morrison 87 for Neil, or at Steve English GP for myself, or at Paddock Pass Pod, and uh, we'll make sure to try and get all those questions answered. You're also able to support us on the podcast with the... Uh, the patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast page and uh, for up to ten dollars a month you're able to give us a a donation a pledge to be able to try and make sure that the show is able to continue that makes a big difference for us and it makes a big difference as well for the producer of the show brian as well who's able to put in the time and effort to try and somehow make the three of us sound half legible at different times shout out to brian yeah big shout out to brian and uh, as i said just make sure that in the run-up to the Andalusian Grand Prix or over the course of the weekend that you get your questions into us and we'll make sure to answer them on the next show on the Paddock Pass podcast, which will come out on Wednesdays in the coming weeks as well. We want to try and get it out a day earlier than what we have just because we've got all these races coming thick and fast. So thanks for listening and until next week's show, for myself, Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison, a big thank you for listening to the show. Is this Neil's new laptop? It is, Dave. It's already covered in some Shiny. sort of white muck. Yeah. I don't know what's happened to it. It's, it's really Super duper. Can I press stop now?